Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for Christian fellowship, for the word of God, for your promises that you're going to keep us and feed us pure uh, spiritual food from your word. And as we search the scriptures and seek to learn, let us have hearts that hunger to grow, to learn, and to better understand your truth, your promises, and your means of salvation. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 This morning, I'm going to launch this. We'll make a little progress before we go back to anything else. And it's This worked earlier. All right, I think it's going to work. We're in Acts 18, which is interesting because we, uh, when I'm preaching, we're in 1 Corinthians, and so this is Paul at Corinth. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 4, and we saw how Paul came to Corinth, and now we're going to look more into what happens there in Corinth. So someone have a Bible? Here, I have it right here. I'll just read it. Let's set the stage, Acts 18, 1 through 5. And after these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. We talked about that last time. That's historical. That's attested in history, and we read the edict and so on. And at that time, the Romans didn't see a difference between Jews and Christians. But we know that the edict had to do with some Christus, which we believe is a reference to Christ. Then as we go on, verse 3, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, that's Quilla and Priscilla, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And this gets us up to where we are here. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And we did talk about this last week, but maybe some weren't here yet, or you had more things that you wanted to say. But if you remember, we talked about the validity of reason, logic, evidence, rationality, and so on. And we had cross-references, like Isaiah 1. Uh, I think, was it verse 8? Come, let us reason together. I've got so many papers here. But we did talk about that. And I looked that word up in the Greek, and it's very important. And what is important for us to know, the word deal, legomai, she was 13 times in the New Testament, 10 are in Acts. So it's very, very uh, important in the book of Acts. And so whether Paul went into synagogues or he had been on Mars Hill in Athens, he presented evidence. He talked about reason, objectivity, what God has said, what God has done, what evidence there is, not only in Scripture, but even in the general, general revelation of the creation that what is being preached is objective truth. 
is not a, a mystical journey into the netherworld of the spirits. It's not a subjective impression that everybody gets to be right, but it is cold, sober truth. Sober truth. Remember the debate with Doug Padgett, the emergent person. That was back when I was a preacher on 24th and Nicollet in Minneapolis. And during the debate, I mentioned something about truth. And he said, well, and I, I said something about objective truth. And his answer was, why do you have to have adjectives attached to truth? Now, why did he object, excuse me, <clears throat> why did he object to adjectives? Anybody want to mention, have an idea about that? There we go, Eric. Can I call you Eric the Elder? Yeah. <laughs> or just Eric the Old, I guess. Okay, either way. <laughs> um, uh, I'm just going to make a guess. In other words, he did not want uh, adjectives because on the on that end of the spectrum, the, the left and all that, they, they, they always have to have a qualifier for truth. Uh, yeah. And that may be, they, he wants his own adjective, like my truth. That's a good observation. The reason he didn't like adjectives, why isn't just truth good enough? Well, that's obscuring what is actually going on. It's an obs- obscuration. Is that a word? I don't know. Obs- somebody knows the word can say it, but it's just making everything gray and fuzzy. Isn't that postmodernism? My truth is not your truth? Yeah. In other words, if there's any idea that somebody has, that's your truth. And then the idea is that you cannot actually know objective truth. And when I describe that in debates and in writing, I use a little children's book analogy. And I don't know if anybody even remembers that children's book that's young, but it was called The Little Engine That Could. Anybody remember that? I think I can, it was, well, I I called it The Little Engine That Couldn't. And what that means is, well, you have your truth. There's no way we can know truth. And so Eric talked about that with Kant and some of the philosophers. And they're saying, since you really cannot be expected to know objective truth, let's just say there's some huge process in history that's bringing us somewhere good, and we won't define the word truth. But when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, there's a definite article. So it isn't just truth, it's the truth. And here's how they do that one. You think, well, that's inescapable. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. How do you get out of that? Well, then the answer is, because Jesus said, I am the truth, their answer is, therefore, truth is personal. Because Jesus is a person, and so they've just evaded the claims of Christ. Does that make sense? And when I read that, I thought, that's, isn't it wicked? Because there's no attempt to know what John 14 really means. 
what the, who Christ is. John 1, 1 through 18, especially John 1, 1. So when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, they said, well, that proves truth is personal. You have your truth, I have my truth. No, that is Jesus making a specific claim that only applies to him, and it shows the deity of Christ, the uniqueness of Christ, and the claims of Christ that are validated in Scripture. So, this reasoning, in this case, the proof that you see in Acts that was going on in the, de- the debates in the synagogue was whether the claims that the Christians were making that the one who was shamefully mocked and crucified by pagans and by at the behest of the rebellious leadership of the Jews couldn't be the Christ. How could someone who was cursed be the Christ of God, the promised Messiah? So if you look at Stephen's speech, you look at different details that are laid out, Luke's way of writing is that in certain places he makes a long speech available to us, and then when the short ones show up later, we, we know that it's of the same content. So what are the long ones? Peter on Pentecost, Stephen's martyrdom, Saul of Tarsus, now Paul, especially in Acts 13, Acts 14, big long speeches. Now the short one, the reader knows what the content would be. He didn't change his message. Okay? So, Acts 17, 2 through 4 says this was Paul's custom. And evidence was presented. And what a shame, what a horrible shame that church growth decided if we removed the offense, we removed the evidence, we removed the unique claims of Christ. We don't debate anything. We don't prove anything, but we provide people with a way to have a better life and so on. Then we'll have a church grow. But, but, they equivocate on the term church. What do you mean? They say, our organization, our brick and mortar, our history, our traditions has buildings and organizations with more people in them, so we had church grow. But if all those people, lots of illustrations, what's the basketball stadium that Joel Steen fills up? Your best life now? Is that church growth or is that religious consumers for the most part? Brian, did you have something you wanted to ask? Last week, you had a reference of uh, uh, John twelve forty eight, which ahead, the, the last again. part of it was, the word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So right. the, rejection, the rejection of what uh, Paul here is teaching uh, is uh, the road to hell. Exactly. And so that's where we end up with the, the essentials of a biblical worldview, that history is heading somewhere, and that's toward judgment. The other view is uh, spiraling into heaven in a, in a good way. So as Paul's custom, 
that evidence is presented. So therefore, therefore, do not run away from evidence because it's on the side of the truth, because God has revealed truth. And so this whole subjective feeling orientation isn't going to lead anybody to the truth. Yes. Paul. I have a question about the Legemai. I wasn't here last week. You may have covered this. I don't know. But uh, it seems to me that's a sanctification kind of word that uh, is going through your gray matter, so to speak. Some of us are studying the uh, person and work of the Holy Spirit and trying to understand it better uh, in the week. And uh, Barton Lloyd-Jones is a a very important resource in that, as well as, obviously, Scripture, because he uses Scripture. But um, can you either now or perhaps you have in the past talk about the interplay between the prompting of the Holy Spirit and reasoning and that sort of thing. Obviously, well, I won't go into that, but at any rate, uh, if you could fold in some of those thoughts, that would be great. Thank you. Okay. Last week, we did talk about um, this word and what it meant was giving objective truth. And so this doesn't mean that only intellectuals come to Christ. It means that the scriptures in the Old Testament that were presented in the synagogue really do predict a suffering servant and a conquering king. Both. But they were expecting the latter, but they got the suffering servant from Isaiah 53 first, The conqueror is coming in the future, and there's details to that, but he brings judgment. Eric, could you comment on that? I can't find it. You know, uh, Paul, I was just thinking as you said that some weeks ago we had a discussion on the inability of man, and we distinguished between what we refer to as natural inability and moral inability. And what the Holy Spirit seems to overcome, although both are there, the primary issue is moral inability. And, and the distinction is, it's not as if God, when he gives us the scriptures, is speaking Chinese and we only understand English. That would be natural inability. There's a language that God is speaking that we can't understand. And therefore, the Holy Spirit has to overcome that. But more, the issue that we see in scripture is a moral rebellion against the gospel. Right. And the proof of that, we looked at uh, Romans chapter 10, where Paul right. cites Deuteronomy 30. And the question was, has God asked us to do anything that was physically impossible, to ascend into the heavens to bring Christ down or to go to Sheol to bring Christ up? And the answer to that was obviously no. We're simply to believe the word that was spoken. And so the point being is that's what the Holy Spirit overcomes. So like in 1 Corinthians twelve three, when it says, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit, what the Spirit is doing is enabling us for the first time to see the goodness of the gospel and to see the beauty of the gospel and to first and foremost to change our will so that we will believe. And so it's a moral issue more than just a natural inability issue, although sin does affect our minds. Um, It affects our entire being. But I hope that helps that the Holy Spirit is primarily overcoming the bondage of the will that we have. And one of the points that Bob made some years ago, it always stuck with me, and we kind of reiterated it in 2 Timothy 3, the Holy Spirit inspired the biblical authors. He doesn't inspire us as the biblical reader. Right. In other words, you'll be at a Bible study, and they have four Christians. They all come up to, with different answers. But what we have to conclude is that the biblical author was the one who was inspired by the Spirit. So we have to come to the conclusion of what, what did the biblical 
writers say. Right. So the author's meaning is what we're looking for. Amen. And that's determined by the author. I found that thing. I, by the way, I bought some time so I could find my notes. Isaiah 118. And here's just some cases here that you might want to jot down. Acts 17.2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them. Here's our word. Dialegomai from the scriptures. The scriptures are not there to produce a religious experience. They're there to tell us who God is, what he did, and the terms of salvation. Okay? You mentioned Romans 10. If you keep reading, I think I use that in a, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But that implies all that's a smaller part of the bigger whole and meaning coming to God on his terms by his grace through the gospel. And so that is, you know who really is offended by the doctrine of election more than anybody else? Christians. Now, I understand. And the best thing that happened to me was making a commitment to start teaching verse by verse through the Bible in 1983 and not skip anything. And I came to verses I didn't like. Now, does that mean that God is telling people, no, you can't come to me, you're not the elect? No. Let's read ahead. Brian, you, call, you called and asked me about what we're going to get to. Do you have that there? After we get through this, here, look at What happened in well, Acts 18, 9, 10, 11, 12, and so on? Well, uh, Paul uh, had a vision. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. I have many people in this city. Yeah, that was my question. Okay, yeah. and, and so we're not going to get that mm-hmm. far, but that brings up the topic. Yeah. Now, did the Lord say to Paul, it's this one, this one, this one, and this one. He didn't know. Go there, stay there, preach. God has people. We don't know who they are. So here's what really helped me, and I hope it helps a lot of other people. As long as we don't know who the elect are, and we do know the terms of the gospel, and we are emboldened by God, because this offends everybody. We saw that in First Corinthians. Offends the Greeks, offends the Jews. And we were talking earlier before class started. When Paul says, give no offense to Jew, no Greek, in the church of God. The church of God he was talking about isn't Christendom. It's people who had been born of God, scattered wherever they may be. So if anybody has insight, I, I really want to understand this. I think it's right. The offense of the gospel happens when we go preach in churches. Well, that now what's that? So I'm concluding that Christendom is a mission field. And that God has many people in this city. God has some people or many in this church 
or that church, or we had uh, my gender in here, he finds God's elect amongst the Roman Catholics by preaching the truth. So that's how I see it now. So the Church of God, don't take that as Christendom. Take it as what developed in church history. So what if, think about this, what if we actually practice Scripture alone and define the church from Scripture alone and not only from church history? I love studying church history. I loved it from the day I was born again. When I first went to a Bible college, I took a summer class, and I started reading historical theology, and I got these big books about the early church fathers. And what I found out immediately was they were messed up right from the beginning. They went this way, that way, and the other way. There was some truth there, but Scripture alone. Yes, go ahead. I think that's evidenced right here in this congregation. If you uh, were to talk to everybody in the congregation, they were pulled out of other places. So unless you were born up in a solid Christian home that went to a solid Bible teaching uh, 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 church, uh, I would say the majority of the people here were called out of whether it be the Catholic Church, uh, uh, Prosperity Church, this, that, or and, the other. In your background? In my background. We is? won't go into that now, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, from now on, we know no man after the flesh. <laughs> but God saved us. And the, the point is this. Preach the truth, the gospel. Don't hold back. Don't worry about preaching repentance. Preach the person of Christ. Preach Christ. And that's laid out. We can know that. Even if you don't believe there's any such thing as the elect, you don't have to if you preach Christ they'll respond anyhow, although we should believe what God said. And just preach Christ. What does that mean? That's a, that's a metonymy. I found out the difference, Eric. What's the difference between a synecdoche and metonymy? I could never figure that out. A synecdoche is a part representing the whole. A metonymy is something associated with something that is used to mean something. Like if we say the White House issued a press release. Technically, the building isn't the presidency. But it's associated with it, so you use it as shorthand. Okay, so that's a metonymy. We, we talked about somebody's new wheels well, that's synecdoche because every car has wheels. I, I think that's true. Maybe they have hovercrafts. Uh, uh, Laverne? I remembered. When you mention the elect, and of course, when you mention Christians coming from different backgrounds, it made me think about how Unfortunately, a lot of people believe that the elect are only Christians. But in the word, the Jews were called the elect, the Christians are the elect, and the um, tribulation saints are also the elect. Yeah, the elect are people who 
are born, become born of God because of God's work through the gospel. That's true. But when, what about the one in Acts? I have many elect in that city. What we see here in 1 Corinthians, some are Jews, some are God-fearers, some are Gentiles. But going there, Paul didn't know who they were. Now, Aquila and Priscilla were likely Christians who came from Rome and were already there ready to serve. And so they come from a lot of places. That's true. Yes. Well, I have uh, talked about the Lord quite often to um, nurses at uh, Methodist Hospital. Um, and I have found a, a reception to whenever I've asked them, uh, if you believe in Jesus, you can pray for me. And uh, I've gotten a, a wonderful response uh, from many wonderful uh, nurses that said they would pray for me. In fact, the first nurse I talked to when I had my first chemotherapy treatment last year, I still remember Peggy. I asked her the question I just told you. Well, she said, let's pray for you right now, David. And uh, I even talked to my primary care doctor, Dr. Revis. I thought, well, what have I got to lose? And I said, Dr. Revis, if you believe in Jesus, you can pray for me. Oh, he said, I believe in Jesus. I'll pray for you. Wow. Yeah, the stories, thank you for sharing. And everyone here, remember to pray for Paul. He's in a huge battle. And I, well, I don't want to go into all the things that I've gone through, but a lot. Even a year ago, I landed back in the hospital. It didn't last long. And everybody's afraid because of COVID and all that. And so I told somebody a story. Well, I was really, really sick, and my daughter and someone agreed to have people tell what I was going through. This is a while back, and they prayed, ridiculous commentary. And there was a young lady there. Um, and she said, well, who are these people praying? I said, well, I'm evangelical Christians, as people believe that. And she just lit up. And then when they were taking me out of there, she came over. Of course, last year with this, all the COVID, you couldn't be near anybody, you couldn't touch anybody. And she took my hand and uh, well, she was praying for me. I didn't last long in the hospital that time. I got right back out. It'd be nice to stay out, wouldn't it? But we don't know. We all have things we go through. God has his people here and there and here and there. And if we can give the truth. Now, this reasoning isn't just logic. It's giving evidence from the scripture. Does it say this or not? Is there ever in the scripture a prediction of suffering, cursed, hang on a tree, uh, Messiah, who would be rejected by his own people, 
and so forth. Is that in the scripture? That's the content. Stephen, uh, well, get it in order. Peter, Stephen, Peter again, Paul. You have Pentecost, you have Stephen, you have Paul there as a witness to that. Then you have Acts 9. I think we're going to go there. Let me get to it. We got to get through another slide. Oh, geography lesson. Last week, I was a little embarrassed because I wasn't prepared. I know this is small, but it's printed. Where has been Paul? There we have Thessalonica. Philippi. Berea. um, And so forth. Here's where he ends up down Corinth, and that's where they made the canal in the 19th century. And then Rome is over there. So so at modern-day Greece, that's where he is. Corinth and so on. So I think there's a printout on your thing about that. I got this out of my Lugos software so I can use it as I see fit. So now let's go to verse 8. Now when Paul and Silas arrived from Macedonia, Paul became wholly absorbed. That's what we want to look at now. Wholly absorbed with proclaiming the word. Now that is amazing. So that's the one I also looked up. Now I buried that one under these other notes. Holy absorbed there is a word from the Greek suneko, uh, which means to hold together tightly. Echo means to have or hold. Soon means together. And it's used in several different senses. In Acts 7.57 it's used in a different sense, but a very interesting one. Acts 7.57. But they covered their ears. It's suneco. They covered their ears, shouting with a loud voice, and rushed on him with one intent. They're covered. It's the same word. But they held their ears tightly and covered them because they didn't want to hear. No. No, I, uh, somebody have the context for that Acts 757? I think it's the end of uh, Stephen's speech, if I'm right, his martyrdom. Go ahead, Eric. Give a little bit of the context and explain that. Yeah, so Stephen here is put to death. And um, in verse 55, it says, But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing, normally he's pictured as seated at the right hand of the Father, so significant he's standing at the right hand of God. Verse 56, it says, And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they, this would be the Jewish audience, they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. Yeah, so they covered their ears. It's on the same root as Paul being wholly absorbed, meaning just held together and this is it, driven. This is the way it's got to be. So ironically, in Acts 7, Paul was there agreeing with the people who covered their ears. Was that not right? He's not converted until Acts 9. So here he is doing that, and now he's doing this to the word. He's holding it tight to his heart. And I never saw that until a couple of weeks ago. I was digging through that Greek word, sunako. 
And so uh, I have a printout of that. Oh, here's A.T. Roberts. And yes, let me read what that's an older scholar. But here's what he said about this uh, word was constrained by the word, Acts 18.5. This is undoubtedly the correct text, and he talks about textual issues. Paul held himself together, or completely, to the, preach, to the preaching, instead of just on Sabbath in the synagogue, verse 4. The coming of Silas and Timothy, says the Robertson, with gifts from Macedonia, set Paul free from tent-making, for a while so he could devote, it's another way they say it, devote himself with fresh concentration, consecration to preaching. And then he says, see 2 Corinthians 5.14. Someone look that up and tell me when you have it. I think it's a good cross-reference. Testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So this constraint is being absorbed devoted, pressed in, was Paul, who previously was like those who covered their ears. Today, here's a challenge. What are we like? What constrains us? Do we cover our ears because we don't want to hear things the Bible says? You know, if a preacher tells you the Bible says something, and they get it wrong, that's why we have this class. We challenge each other to read and understand. But if it's clearly true and we don't like it, are we doing this or are we doing this? Covering our ears or being totally devoted. If I can find out what this means, and we believe in the clarity of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, then I want to know. So Paul was changed. He was totally changed to one who, Sunico, although it doesn't mention him in particular, but he was holding the coats of the ones that were like that, so he was, to one who was like this. Uh, let me read Acts. Did somebody find 2 Corinthians 5? Oh, there we go. Some, uh, we need a mic over here. Paul's found that, and then we'll turn, while he's doing that, Turn to Acts 9, 10 through 16. We'll read that. We'll show how God actually changes people. Yes, Paul. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Right. And that word uh, constrained, controls, absorbs, same word. And I think used in a similar context. The love of Christ, and Robertson pointed it out, constrains us, says one died for all, all died. What's that? It's a gospel issue. One died for all. That's the point. So now let's read Acts 9, 10 through 16. If you turn to that, here we go. This is about what Paul used to be like, and somebody who loved the Lord didn't even want to have anything to do with him. I know what this guy's like. You want me to go pray for him? No way. Here, let's read it. Acts 9, 10 through 16. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, 
Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. Now, this is not subjective impression. It was objective. It was really the Lord. It was really clear. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. And he had seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so he may regain his sight. Now remember, Paul was struck blind after he saw the resurrected Christ. Let's go on. But Ananias, now this is the good Ananias, answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. Why would the Lord tell Ananias to pray for a guy who was in league with the martyrdom of Stephen? Because he, w- he wouldn't believe it could be true. When God saves somebody, almost always, if you were like me, like I was, nobody can believe it's true. My friends, my coworkers, none of them can believe it's true. They didn't think it was possible because I was so hostile. I know what this guy did. Lord, I've heard about this man. Verse 14, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And everything that happened bears out that this was cold, sober truth. The rest of Acts tells us he did bear the name, by the way. It's a metonymy for the whole personal work of Christ. It isn't just a name. It's just, by the way, you mentioned Jesus is Lord. There are false teachers who claim Jesus lost his divinity, went to hell, became a mere man, had to fight with the devil as a man in order to regain his divinity. That's heresy, by the way. And they're preaching with a banner right over their head, Jesus is Lord. So it isn't just the words, it's the doctrine. So then if you ask sometimes, well, what do you believe about the nature and person of Christ? Well, then you get a blank. Because they just know the slogan. They don't know the doctrine of Christ. So let's go back to this. To bear my name before Gentiles. How did he do that? Well, we're reading about it. Kings, that's later in Acts. The sons of Israel, that happened in the synagogues and elsewhere. And that is how Luke gives us a preview of what's going to happen throughout Acts. Now, let that inform our theology. Oh, the, the really bad doctrines out there. People have written and rebuked me. You don't understand. Paul was only for the, he had a different message. He was just for the Gentiles. Well, that's, the Lord himself didn't say that right here. The gospels aren't for the church. They're just for the Jews. That's a lie. I don't care who hates me. 
I'm going to say that's a lie, and I won't listen to it. It's always been a lie. It always will be a lie. We've got to go by Scripture. He's to bear my name, Gentiles, kings, sons of Israel. There was no limit to where the gospel is going to go. And why do we know that's what it means? Luke 24, Acts 1. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the othermost regions of the earth. Gay, meaning the globe. Rome was the place from which that would eventually all go out. So Paul's gospel is the same gospel of Peter and everybody else. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it was for these people. So this calling first mentioned Acts 9, 10 through 16, when Ananias was shown that Saul Tarsus was chosen, called, sent. Before the fact, if you were there and you saw what happened to Stephen and you heard what Stephen preached and you're like Ananias, you heard about this guy, would anybody ever think that Saul of Tarsus was called, chosen, sent? I just ask you that question. No. No. Nobody would. But that's what God did. Well, his will was to destroy Christians. Um, What we need to do is just understand and declare the whole counsel of God. And there are ways, clearly this is not incoherent. And we can get into some real technical material, and I'm prepared to do that if that's necessary. But the fact is, believe what it says. And then if there are things that we need to keep learning, don't go to a creed in church history, go to scripture. Because I found that that's the biggest stumbling block. Is that people assume that creeds in church history written by not people that aren't apostles, aren't inspired by the Holy Spirit, are the be-all and end-all of what God ever said. And they're not inspired or they're not absolutely correct. So we got to go back to Scripture and test everything, everything, and seek to learn what God said. And here's another one. Maybe you've heard this. Nobody knows all the truth. Well, nobody but God. I, I know that. But that is the little engine that couldn't. Nobody knows all the truth, so therefore, I can't know what this verse means. So I say, well... Let's see if we can really search the scripture and see what this verse means. That's what I did this last week. I searched holy absorbed, where else that was used, historicity, the things that happened, proclaiming the word, which, by the way, the longer version is in Acts 13, Acts 14, testifying to the Jews Jesus was the Messiah. Why did he have to do that? Because he'd been cursed. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. So don't, we're not claiming that we know all the truth. We're not claiming that we know everything revealed in Scripture. Because we'll learn the rest of our lives if we keep searching. But don't give in to despair. If I can't know everything perfectly, that's the same as knowing nothing. So let's just have an experience. 
That's the problem. So um, a lot of things have happened to confirm to me that focus on what's at hand and keep studying, keep learning, and things will become clear. If they don't, I'm willing to say I'm not sure what's clear. We've done that before as well because there are times when 1 Corinthians is going to come to that because there are things they said to him and asked him, things that went back and forth that they knew what he's talking about. He did, but we're guessing. Like the restrainer, Eric. He had actually told Thessalonians who the restrainer was, but we're not privy to that. So let's go to verse 6. But wait a second, where am I here? Okay, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was Christ, verse 6. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and uh, said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. I'll go to the Gentiles. Now, this doesn't mean else. That's where people get it wrong. From then on, he never went into a synagogue again. False. From then on, he never preached to Jews again. False. This is a statement about what was happening right then and there and telling the people present that he had preached the truth, he taught the truth, he laid it out there, proved it from scriptures, and if they're going to say, nuts to you, go away, they're going to be like Saul was himself. Rather than holding fast, they're going, I'll cover your ears. I'll go to the Gentiles. Now, what's this thing about blood on your own heads? Anybody heard that sort of thing anywhere? Old Testament? Yeah, and it, it, it's a mention, it's an allusion to Ezekiel, I believe. Remember when Ezekiel was called? Somebody can look this up, Ezekiel 33, 4. Otherwise, I'll just read it. We've got limited time. Ezekiel 33, 4. Then he, he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, and his sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. Now, that's an allusion to other cases like that. But the point is, if the messenger won't tell people the truth, under the new covenant, we know what the terms are, and we don't want to tell them. Why do we need to tell them the truth? Why do we need to make it clear? Why do we need to not fear man? Because judgment is coming. History isn't heading toward paradise, it's heading toward judgment. Life is short. No one, unless we're alive when the Lord, when the rapture happens, all of us are going to die. And so we're going to tell people your best life now. Everything is evolving into some glorious paradise without future judgment. That's false. I would wager, based, I don't wager, but I, I would say, based on what we know from Scripture and what, we, what I preached in, from Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians, the truth of the gospel is never going to please the lost, but it'll convert whoever does believe, yes. 
in some of the past few sessions in acts you have mentioned the uh, uh, liberal theologians who had said that Paul was a failure at what he had been doing. Yeah. So uh, here, once again, they would say that uh, the blood is on your hands. He left uh, and went to the Gentiles. Would that be another example of these uh, uh, left-wing theologians using that as uh, ammunition? Well, the, the reference I made there was to the New Apostolic Reformation, see Peter Wagner, Fuller Seminary, Church Growth Technology, and observing what would get a, a, what he called a people movement, which came from Donald McGavern, that idea. So what their theory was, we need to do signs and wonders because some theologians said Paul failed at Athens, so after that he went and did signs and wonders. Here's the problem with that. There's no indication that Christians can do signs and wonders if they just learn how. So if your sign and wonder can be produced because you know the technology to produce it, it's not a sign and wonder, it's a natural event. So one group was found having gold flakes blow out of the the vent system and saying God showed up. Well, I was hoping for more than gold flakes. <laughs> and besides that, if God showed up, they'd be judged. Go look at it. Look at uh, Exodus where Moses on Sinai. Look at um, Isaiah. So where is that? Uh, six? Isaiah 6? I saw the Lord. Wow, great. Not so great, was it? Um, Dan, could you look up Isaiah 6? You got a Bible there? Let's talk about that. So the fact is God has chosen to use the ironically foolish message of a crucified Jewish Messiah to save those who believe. Isaiah 6 is meaningful to Eric and I because we met right under a by a cornerstone and had it etched on there but out of context. Do you want me to read the whole? Go ahead. Okay. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the the temple. Keep going. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Stop right there. Did he say, Wow, we had a glory cloud. Invite everybody to the meeting. That's the C. Peter Wager version of it, and others have followed it. No. He said, whoa. What happened to Moses? Had to be hid in the cleft of the rock. So go on, and then Eric and I will tell how we met. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had touched, had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. So let's stop right there. How do we get in a position where ultimately we can be in God's presence? We've got to have our sin removed, and we need purgation. Go on. Amen. Also, I heard the, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Stop right there. That's on the cornerstone. <clears throat> Eric, no, let Eric tell his part of the story. First day I ever met Eric in person. Yeah, we uh, met at Bethel. I had called Bob. I used to be an airline pilot. I would drive, and I would hear him on the radio, and I thought, wow, this guy understands the truth. Ran into the emerging church heresy. Asked Bob if he would help me confront the provost. He showed up, and we're standing in the foyer right right when he come in, Mm -hmm. and there's a cornerstone that has this very passage on it. Ironically, it's taken out of context because in the next verses, Bob and I have always laughed about that. It says... Then I heard a voice of the Lord, this is verse 8, saying, Whom shall I send and go for us? He says, Send me. And he says in verse 9, he said, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. And keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. So the irony is this mission that Isaiah sent upon is one in which he's preaching, knowing God knows that it's going to have a hardening effect. Yeah, judgment of hardening. The judgment of hardening. But the people at Bethel, ironically, have this cornerstone where they're promising the exact opposite. And you and I saw that whole idea come to fruition in the seeker-sensitive movement, as you laid out, that devastated and then later the emerging church, all because of a misunderstanding of passages like right. that. They had both. Yeah. Could you hand Oops. me my show and tell there? Oh, yeah. Um, they had both. Yeah, there's two more. Those. They had both there. When I got there, there were great teachers. Schreiner, Block, uh, Bob Stein. He taught hermeneutics that the author determines the meaning great teacher and there were some others that weren't so great I graduated and the next thing that came was emergent but during that time about the time those good professors left they brought in Bill Hybels so they went from solid theology to seeker to emergent in 10 years Ten years. Why? Well, some of us was is I don't know the heart. Only God knows the heart. But when I first got there, and I was sitting under these great teachers, they were lamenting that they didn't have enough money, and the, they were going in the red all the time. And when they brought in a new provost, and they brought in Hybels, and then Ward didn't speak there, but they had his book. They went from three million in the red to into the black, millions of dollars in the black. Better, but then the teachers left, 
and they brought in emergent. Doug Padgett, who I debated, was a speaker. And so they went from solid theology, seeker, nobody can know anything emergent, and not even worth trying to get an education because you're not going to learn anything from the Bible. That's when Eric got there, and he called me and said, what is this? So here's the cornerstone. Here I am, send me. But they don't read the whole thing. Here's the point. The truth of the gospel offends Christians in churches, in seminaries. And it takes a lot of time to raise the money, to buy the land, to build the brick and mortar, to get the library, to get access to all of these great things. And now it's there for nobody can know the truth. Why do I need all these books if nobody can tell the truth, know the truth? Why search all this stuff? Why have all this research? Why have all these resources? Why spend all these millions and millions? But nobody can know the truth. Rich. In the last days, people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, they'll turn their ears to false teachers to hear whatever their itching ears want to hear. What we're seeing, people, is the out, outline of the last days. I've heard statistics where Christians don't even believe in the virgin birth anymore, or people that should in these churches, they don't even believe in basic Christian doctrine anymore. They're falling unbelievably. I've been reading statistics about how Christians are falling away and not even believing in basic Christian doctrine. Why is that? Last days. It's the last days in there. They don't really know God. If they were born of God, they would love the truth. Right? Yeah. You know, it just is back in the day. I mean, people call the Bible the good book. Now they call it hate speech. (laughs) All right. I said something that wasn't quite right last week. We republished this book on emergent, so I want to get that right. This is what uh, uh, this Danielle Schroer published. She was at that conference where I went to do research up uh, north of Chicago. And the first chapter was about this Moltman and his eschatology. Interesting guy. I heard him speak. But after that, here's the book by this Schroer. After publishing the first edition of this book, I attended an emergent conference in Chicago where Dr. Moltman spoke to his dedicated following, 250 emergent leaders. One such follower, Danielle Schroer, had published a book about his theology, describing it as, quote, neo-Hegelian panentheistic universalism, unquote. (laughs) Well, that's what I said when I wrote the first edition of this book was it was from Hegel. Well, now they just say it's from Hegel. German philosopher. Let's unpack that. I've got a couple of minutes. What's neo-Hegelian? Remember Hegel? Well, you wouldn't know him because he was late... Yeah, the, that's the short version of it. Everything There's this version of history that's going somewhere good that all antitheses are merging into something and then there's more and they merge. So that's, what, that's where emergent came from. So we don't have much time. 
panentheistic. What does that mean? God's in everything. So now what have you done? He said everything's going somewhere good, and the biblical God described doesn't exist. Because the biblical God is eternal, non-contingent, totally transcendent, and created a whole universe out of nothing. That God is anathema to Hegel, Moltmann, and Emergent. Universalism, what does that mean? Everybody's ultimately saved. And so there's some irony there, I think. I had originally published with this vortex, and it was kind of red in the middle because I said it's a spiral down. Well, on Schroer's book, and I don't have a picture of it, shows a stairway spiraling up to heaven. So let's think about that as we close. Is the human race that rejects God and the truth universally part of God spiraling upward toward universalism? Or is history heading toward judgment? Is God who the Bible says he is? Or is it the God of the culture, the philosophers, and those people alienated from God? I say the Bible's true. What we do know has already happened, that was predicted, happened in objective history. So therefore we have cold, sober truth, not truth with no adjectives. So believe in Jesus Christ, trust in him, turn to him, trust him alone, and believe the gospel. God saves those who come to him by his grace on his terms. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your kindness, and your mercy. We know that had you not shown grace and mercy to us, these things would be as abhorrent to any one of us as they are to people that we read about in the Bible. Thank you for your grace and mercy. And give us boldness to proclaim your gospel wherever we go. And do not allow us to fall into the fear of man or the desire to be popular, but help us be bold in the truth and cling to you. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Thank you, dear ones, and thank you for being here today.